Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaggs. Well, welcome again, brothers and sisters, to the Boston University Law School podcast. I'm your host, David Yaz. I am a proud alum of the law school, class of 1993. Seems like a long time ago right now. I was used to be the publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. People may know me for that. Currently, my day job, I'm a vice president at Bernstein Global Wealth Management. But I'm delighted to be here to talk once again about a topic that has emanated from the BU Law School community. And this is a a terrific one, and we have a terrific guest. It is extremely timely, as a matter of fact. There's a great debate, of course, before the U.S. Supreme Court on whether the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act minimum coverage provision is, in fact, constitutional. Over the course of three days in late March, the justices of the Supreme Court heard arguments in the case captioned as the Department of Health and Human Services versus Florida, And the justices are presently deliberating, so we're right at the fulcrum of this debate. A decision is set to be reached sometime in June of this year. Our guest today was the lead author of the amicus brief to this case, which was submitted on behalf of more than 100 health law professors. Today, we're going to take a look at the case, the brief, examine some of the interesting points that arose during the oral arguments, and we'll look ahead to the potential impact of the Supreme Court court's decision. It's, it's hard to imagine a case that affects more of us in a case that is more in everybody's mind as to whether actually purchasing health care insurance can be mandated by the government. My guest is Wendy Mariner. She's a professor of law at the BU School of Law. She's the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at the BU School of Public Health and Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at the BU School of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. It, time does not permit me to read your entire bio, but uh, rest assured, <laughs> my listeners, it is it is quite impressive, and Wendy is an authority on this. So why don't we start just with some background on this case, Wendy, the, the Department of Health versus Florida case. It is, of course, up at the Supreme Court. Tell us the backdrop of this. Tell us what the debate is as you describe it. Well, the case that's before the Supreme Court, um, DHS against Florida, is a case that was originally brought by 26 states, including Florida, and a business association against the government to uh, claim that the individual mandate, as they called it, or the minimum coverage provision, as the government calls it, is um, unconstitutional as a violation of um, the Commerce Clause, beyond Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. They also challenged the expansion of Medicaid, but uh, that the Supreme Court heard separate arguments. So why, why is the, uh, pardon the interruption, but sure. why is the Commerce Clause at issue? Is, is that because the government is using the Commerce Clause, as they have done in the past, as an excuse to get to this? Yes, um, there are two kinds of arguments the government might make. One is that this was functionally a tax and should be considered an exercise of Congress's power to tax and spend for the general welfare. Um, That had not gotten much traction, and the the, uh, federal government defended primarily on the power of Congress to regulate health care and health insurance um, as part of interstate commerce. There had been a conflict in the the circuits, uh, with the Sixth Circuit upholding 
the, the mandate is constitutional and the 11th Circuit, the Florida case, uh, declaring it unconstitutional. So the Supreme Court had good reason uh, to accept the cert on this particular case. So you've got more than 100 health law professors on your side. You're the lead author of, of this brief up at the Supreme Court uh, and alongside uh, Mark Hall, who's a professor, law professor at Wake Forest. Tell us about your brief, your involvement. Tell us about your argument. Tell us why, what, what your position is. Why should, should the government be able to mandate this? Well, we actually didn't make a man, an argument on doctrine. Uh, Mark and I, this was truly a joint effort, had, had been concerned that uh, some of the lower courts did not seem to have what we felt was an adequate grasp of the complex health care and health insurance system. And we thought that it would be valuable to provide an amicus brief that really laid out uh, the place of health care and health insurance in the national economy. And a lot of people would be providing doctrinal briefs, but in all honesty, we thought that doctrine wasn't going to resolve this question because you need to know how that doctrine applies, and you need, therefore, the facts on the ground, because bad facts make bad law. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we wanted to simply confine ourselves to a description of the healthcare and health insurance industry and, and field, and to do so in a, in a nonpartisan way. These are facts that most experts and law professors in the field of health law agree on, regardless of their ideological preferences, political positions, or feelings about government intervention in health policy. Give us an example of something that the, the courts missed that you're seeking to correct. One particular concern was the function of health insurance. Um, and the second was the, the relevant market that is being discussed. We thought that the the challengers had described the only issue in the case as the individual mandate for health insurance mm -hmm. with no connection to health care at all, whereas the Affordable Care Act regulates the health care industry and the health care sector uh, quite extensively throughout the rest of the act in, as well as through insurance. So we wanted to make that clear. Okay. So you t and you take one. Do you take no position on on whether the individual mandate is a good thing or a bad thing? I do personally. In and in this um, in the brief, we conclude that we think the facts support the government's position more than the challenger's position. Okay. Tell us um, tell us why healthcare is different because that's at, at issue here as to why the the concept of something surrounding healthcare. And this mandate is different than other industries, other products and services, et cetera. Yes, that's quite important, actually. Um, healthcare is different in in the sense that it it is a necessity. It's something everyone needs and uses, and we were able to put numbers on that. Uh, less than one percent of of adults have never visited a doctor or other healthcare profession. So it is something that everybody uses, which is unlike most other necessities. Mm -hmm. um, there are other necessities, food, water, shelter, clothing, of course. Uh, but those are somewhat different because everybody needs about the same amount of food and water and basic shelter and clothing. Mm -hmm. It's predictable for people. It's pretty consistent. And with some salient exceptions, it can be generally affordable. Healthcare doesn't meet any of those three criteria. It's mm -hmm. unlike these other necessities, because apart from routine care, um, it's unpredictable. A person can't predict 
the need for health care. So your use of health care is inconsistent both personally and across a population. Mm-hmm. Also, people don't choose what health care to get. Mostly they rely on doctors' evaluations and recommendations, and they can accept or reject those recommendations. So people tend not to know how to respond to an illness or an injury. And finally, healthcare is very expensive. It's so expensive that the ordinary person couldn't afford most major healthcare by themselves. And so that's why they use insurance to spread the cost over time and across the population. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be affordable for most of us. Right. So tell us, though, so this, it being unique, that means that the case likely won't be a precedent for buying other things or services? Could it open the door to a mandate for something else? Uh, well, that's certainly what the challengers argue, uh, that they're, they're simply looking at the at comparing it to buying anything else. But there's really no need to, um, to ensure access to cars or access to houses. I mean, we might like that, but there's no pressing need to do so because of expense or unpredictability or anything like that. And in particular, there's no need to use insurance to buy other necessaries. You don't need insurance to pay for food. You don't need insurance to pay for water. Mm -hmm. So it would be hard to argue that requiring people to buy insurance for those items would be necessary to regulate commerce. So on the Health Affairs blog, you wrote, not since the New Deal has the Supreme Court considered such a fundamental challenge to the government's power to regulate individuals. That's pretty heavy. Tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's true. If you look back at the Great Depression, um, the Social Security Act was vigorously challenged uh, as an unprecedented expansion of federal power. Now, we take that for granted today, right? We say there is no question um, that Congress could impose a tax for Social Security or for Medicare, and that it could use that money to provide benefits to those in need. That's simply easy. It wasn't easy in 1937. Um, in Helvering against Davis, the uh, Supreme Court decided, upheld that uh, the Social Security Act as uh, a constitutional exercise of Congress's power. And interestingly, there had been there were two dissents. Justices McReynolds and Butler dissented on the grounds that this act was repugnant to the Tenth Amendment, and you can hear exactly that, that concept in the challenger's argument that the individual mandate invades state sovereignty. There's, there's sort of a, a return to a laissez-faire uh, argument that the federal government should not uh, um, be as involved as it is in commerce or healthcare in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you monitored the Supreme Court oral argument, and you noticed a few things in there. Can you give us just maybe a couple highlights or perhaps some tendencies among the justices that, that might give us a clue as to the outcome of the case? Well, I can, I can tell you what I heard. I'm not sure that will give us a clue as to the outcome of the case. Uh, People always want to ask that question anyway, even though we both know that the oral argument sometimes is, is deceiving as to how the, it might come out. Yes, but, it but can be yeah. very deceiving, although interestingly, there has been some research that um, correlates the number of questions asked to a particular party mm-hmm. with the likelihood of losing the case. 
Mm-hmm. And in that respect, um, the government was in trouble. The losers get more questions? Yes. Okay. Now, who knows whether right. that is um, applicable here. In the individual mandate argument, what was, was striking, first of all, that the Supreme Court had um, several sets of oral arguments on different issues in the case, mm-hmm. one on, on whether or not the Anti-Injunction Act applied if, if the mandate could be considered a tax, one on the expansion of, of um, Medicaid eligibility, one on the individual mandate and its constitutionality under the Commerce Clause, and finally, and most interestingly, a, an entire argument on whether if the mandate were struck down, um, that section alone could be severed from the Act, or whether other sections should be severed, or whether the entire Act should be declared unconstitutional, as one lower court had done. Right. So the, the, everyone was, of course, primed to listen to the arguments on the individual mandate. And what was particularly interesting to me was the, the focus on the mandate as it seemed to be like the only thing in the act. This is an act that, as originally put together, was 2,700 pages or more. Right. Uh, it was clear in the severability arguments that Justice Scalia hadn't read it and wouldn't read it, and perhaps the other justices had not read the rest of the act. They focused on on that particular provision as though it were an independent statute that could be um, decided on its own merits and not in the context of the overall act. Mm-hmm. So they were seemed to be searching for a limiting principle. Um, you know, just as we were saying, is, is there any way to distinguish between federal and state power? Is, is there a way to say if the federal government has the power to do this, um, is there a slippery slope right. or is there a limit? So there was a great deal of, of emphasis on that. There was surprisingly little, this little quest, fewer questions on um, what, what actually constitutes commerce, what's the definition I mean, we all mm-hmm. know that commerce is, uh, is one of the so-called enumerated powers, but sometimes we forget that each of those powers was granted in full uh, to the federal government. Right. So one question is whether um, it makes any sense at all to limit the federal government's power under an enumerated power when it's supposed to have it. For example, the Congress can't have just a little power to raise armies. It has to have it all, right, right mm-hmm. for the national right. defense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was not discussed, interestingly enough. Nor was uh, what I think is a really interesting question, the difference between forbidding something and requiring something. Mm-hmm. Nobody questions that um, Congress can forbid people who are not in any market from doing something, like growing marijuana. Right mm-hmm. or buying other illegal drugs or items, um, but here the question seemed to be focused on: Can Congress create a market, as Justice Kennedy asked, um, and then force or force people to join the market? Mm-hmm. In the in the Sixth Circuit, the Justice Sutton, in a concurring opinion, uh, had a very thoughtful discussion of the impracticality of distinguishing between requiring and prohibiting because often it amounts to the same thing Mm -hmm. 
So that wasn't discussed, and perhaps it, I think it may be critical to the decision. Okay. Well, we're talking with Wendy Mariner here, professor from the law school. We're going to take a quick break and get back to this discussion about the U.S. Supreme Court and health care. Stay with us. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to the BU Law School podcast. I'm David Yaz, your host. My guest today is Wendy Mariner, a professor at the BU School of Law. She's also a professor of the Utley Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at the School of Public Health and Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at the BU School of Medicine. It is just a, a mouthful to try to explain how important you are, Wendy. I'm sorry. It, it's, it, it took hours of practice this morning for me to get this done. But anyway, I... Well, that I, is overly, overly generous. Well, <laughs> well, she is quite learned, as you've learned thus far in the podcast. We're continuing to discuss the great debate at the U.S. Supreme Court on whether the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act minimum coverage provision is, in fact, constitutional and all the surrounding issues within that case. So we talked earlier, Wendy, about why healthcare is different than other industries, but the concept of insurance itself, since that's an issue here, tell us about why insurance is different. Well, this is one point we did want to discuss in our brief because uh, people tend to think of insurance uh, generically. And health insurance is really different from most other insurance, certainly from kind of insurance that most people are familiar with. It's different because health insurance pays for more than 86% of personal health care in the United States. It's what we use to buy health care. Uh, contrast that with other kinds of insurance, like car insurance. You don't use car insurance to buy a car. You buy a car with other money, maybe a loan, then you buy insurance to protect it against future damage. Right. You don't do that with health insurance. It's, it's the cash you're using to buy health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not paying for future damages. And it's certainly morphed over the last uh, couple of decades and changed dramatically with the Affordable Care Act to, um, to cover everything, including preventive care. Your other insurance is not going to pay for routine maintenance, right? Right. Uh, not going to pay for cleaning up the house on your homeowner's insurance. But health insurance does. It is really a way to finance care. And it's useful, as I mentioned earlier, uh, because the cost of care is, most of most care is simply not affordable to individuals at the moment they may need expensive care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we thought that was an important point to get across, and I'm not sure that it got across. <laughs> Well, we got it. So we thank you for filling us in on that. How about the the controversial individual mandate? We've touched upon it briefly, but tell us about why you think it's such a fiery debate. Well, I think there are probably several reasons. Uh, The first one is that Congress hasn't ever enacted a law exactly like this in the past. And so uh, 
there's really no Supreme Court precedent that is exactly on point, uh, which makes sense. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the Supreme right. Court. Uh, I guess the most principled reason that I can think of that people would object is they really don't think the federal government should have the power to require people to do things. Although it, it, the prohibiting people from doing things is equally problematic, I suspect, from persons who are concerned about protecting individual liberty. But that doesn't seem to trouble the, um, those who challenge the uh, individual mandate on commerce grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, and of course, if there's a concern for liberty, then you would challenge that under another provision of the Constitution, like the Due Process Clause, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that certainly is not the case here. And one might object to a state like Massachusetts, which imposes an individual mandate to be covered by health insurance. No one challenges the state power to do that. It right. has it. Uh, the question is, should Congress have it as well? And now, presumably, there are political and ideological motivations to challenge the act. And there's some irony here because uh, let's recall that many of the conservative legislators who were ones who insisted that health reform keep the private health insurance industry intact because they oppose greater role for federal government in, in health policy. Mm-hmm. Now they argue that the, um, that the one thing that helps make the private insurance industry function well to cover everyone with reasonably affordable premiums should be struck down as unconstitutional. So there's a, a certain irony here. Well, we talked about the oral arguments earlier and any clues we might have, you might have picked up on the way this case will turn out. Do you have, do you have a sense? Do you have a prediction, Professor Mariner, on how this case will turn out? No, I have said from the minute it was filed, I have no prediction um, and have frustrated many an audience in that respect. Smart woman. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But the reason is that I was far more um, concerned about the constitutional argument than many of my colleagues who supported the Affordable Care Act. Uh, a full disclosure, I support it quite strongly, mm-hmm. but the, the, the way in which it was enacted by describing the, um, the minimum coverage provision as imposing a penalty instead of a tax gave challengers a textual hook. And while I don't think that that's dispositive, it did raise sufficient questions to make this a difficult decision. So I think it depends upon whether the Supreme Court views, uh, the, a majority views this in isolation as a single statute requiring people to buy something or as a mechanism to implement the entire act to finance health care by, uh, by retaining the private sector rather than transferring everything to uh, say, a government finance system. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will be standing by, and if people want to continue to follow this issue, first off, Wendy, how do people find your blog? Um, well, I've just blogged for Health Affairs, not personally. Okay. Um, so they can certainly find it on healthaffairs.org blog. Okay. I'm, I stand corrected. Not your blog, yet your fine blog posts, I should, I should point out. So I encourage people to check that out. And if someone wants to contact you, Wendy, to learn more about the topic or to get in touch for any reason, how should they do that? Well, um, email is usually best, and that is 
wmariner at vu.edu. Very good. So check your inbox right now, Wendy, because oh, I have a feeling that, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's great. I'd love to hear from I'm people. certain our educated audience will have nothing but terrific questions for you. So a special thanks to our guest, Wendy Mariner, for joining us today and to all of our listeners. You can find all the editions of the BU Law Podcast on Legal Talk Network, the BU Law website, as well as on iTunes. And we also encourage you to download the new Android app for Legal Talk Network. If you go on your Android and search for Legal Talk Network, you'll be able to find that app. Please download that. My name is David Yaz. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.